Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Glad you're with us. We begin today with a follow-up to my conversation yesterday with Baltimore City Police Commissioner Rich Worley. In 2022, voters overwhelmingly approved a ballot measure to move oversight of the police force from the state to the city. Next Monday and Thursday, the Baltimore City Council will hold town halls to discuss bills to affect this transition. The town halls on December 4th and December 7th will begin at 5.30 p.m. at City Hall. And today on Midday, it's Midday in the Neighborhood. We're going to check in with some colleagues from our news partner, the Baltimore Banner. In a few minutes, I'll speak with Clara Longo de Fritas and Misty Fay of Friends of Herring Run Parks about environmental issues at the parks along Herring Run. I'll also speak with Daniel Zawadney, who's been writing about transportation issues in the Howard County school system. But we begin with Jasmine Vaughn Hall, who has been covering several issues in South Baltimore. She joins us on Zoom. Hey, Jasmine, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Sure. Thanks for being here. And Baltimore City Councilwoman Felicia Porter is with us as well. She represents South Baltimore, and she was instrumental in luring a grocery store to a neighborhood that very much needs one. Councilwoman, welcome. Thank you so much, Tom. So, Jasmine, um, let's talk about this grocery store. Um, they haven't had one over there in Mount Clare Junction for quite a while, but uh, they're about to get one. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, so it's been basically almost a year since the former grocery store closed over there. And I remember it being, you know, very much a shock to people um, that it was closing after 10 years. It just wasn't economically viable. At least that's what the parent company was saying. So when the Jumbo Fresh supermarket sign came up on the building, I, of course, got a few different calls and people wanted to know what was going on. And um, Councilwoman Felicia Porter was one of the first people that I reached out to to get a little bit more information. And Councilwoman uh, Porter, uh, getting a grocery store to commit to anywhere in the city is no easy feat. So congratulations on talking them into it. There was a Safeway there uh, back in the 90s. I used to shop there all the time. Then it became a price, right? As Jasmine mentioned, it was there for about 10 years. Then it closed about a year ago. Um, how did it uh, How did it come to be that the, the Jumbo Fresh chain decided to locate there? Yes, and so Tom, you actually hit the nail right on the head. It's it's actually extremely difficult um, to bring grocery stores um, into the city of Baltimore. Um, with this particular grocery chain, um, we actually toured the site in Bladensburg um, about a year ago. Um, and after four grocers turned us down for that particular area, we knew that Jumbo Fresh was the right partner um, that was community centered. It was a small locally owned grocery store um, that needed um, that needed to expand its op- operations and also had ties to the community as well. So and, it was definitely a good move. And why is it so hard to locate grocery stores here in the city? What you 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 went to four other. Uh, places before you finally found a good fit with Jumbo Fresh. Why why were the other ones uh, reluctant to do it? So some of the issues that um, a few grocery options were bringing up were, of course, the economic vitality of their business model within up-and-coming communities. And I use that term, up-and-coming communities, because Southwest and Southwest Baltimore are on the verge of really gaining economic vitality in the city of Baltimore. Number two um, is just the public safety issues that many of our commercial corridors are dealing with. 
um, with regard to just open air, um, open air drug drug trading, um, and just other um, public safety issues that in that area we're, we're actively tackling. And then lastly, um, many of the grocery options brought up theft um, as a primary reason that um, you know, they just could not make the numbers work within their business model. And so we have, with this new grocery store model, we have really um, flipped the flipped the nail on its head and really reimagined how we label grocery stores and how we bring grocery stores in. So, you know, we are actively addressing those three opportunities for growth within this new Jumbo Fresh grocery store model. And Councilwoman, let me ask you how you address things uh, on behalf of, of the, uh, the the business owners when it comes to theft. I mean, I I noticed yes. that, you know, when you go to the CVS drugstore, or the Walgreens now, um, sometimes they actually have photographs of the items uh, that you have to ask for behind the counter. Uh, and it's because so many of those items were being stolen. I mean, just the, the soap is locked up. You know, the shaving cream is locked up. The Band-Aids are locked up. Um, how, how can the city, uh, you know, what, what, what were your assurances that you were able to offer them uh, consist of? Definitely. And so this is an opportunity where I brought in my public health expertise, Um, you know, traveling to multiple countries and understanding how they utilize food access. I brought back some of the best practices into the city of Baltimore. So the first thing that I uh, saw in other countries is that they have an active food pantry um, at the grocery store. So this is an opportunity uh, for people do not necessarily commit crimes of survival. We see that when people need food options, they often uh, result in theft of food in order to to survive and, and just eat on a daily basis. Number two, we provided um, an option for them to have connection to social services resources. So we are actively going to have city and state agencies within that Mount Clare Junction shopping center so that in the event that they are, un- are unable to financially support themselves, they have a direct connection to social services so that they can indeed get the help that they need, whether it be um, food assistance, energy assistance, or even addiction assistance within that shopping center. Number three, we were able to really just have an honest conversation about why people are are committing those crimes of survival um, in the city of Baltimore. And so we were able to work with our philanthropic partners um, like Care First to have an opportunity for them to increase their programming within the shopping center as well. So not only are we addressing the actual uh, the actual public safety need, we're addressing the actual need for food and survival for their family. And Jasmine had in her story, Councilwoman, uh, a report. It's a little bit dated. It's back from 2018 from the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. Uh, that estimated one in four Baltimore residents live in areas with limited access to healthy and affordable food. So this this idea of food deserts in our city is a really, really prevalent and serious problem. So this grocery store, you know, and you mentioned you have a background in public health, you hold a master's in public health. Uh, This is this is a really this is literally a matter of life and death, isn't it? No, you're exactly right. It's it's a matter of life and death, but 
it's also an opportunity for us to reimagine how we do food policy in the city of Baltimore. We've, we've consistently always focused on the economic vitality, but what I often uh, get across to people is that the economic vitality also includes the, the families as well. You know, it, there, there is a cost to theft. There is a cost to not providing the necessary resources for families to, to be in the city, whether it be food access, housing, et cetera. Um, that's a that's a tax that often um, is is shunneled by the taxpayer. And Councilwoman, uh, before we let you go, uh, talk about public funding for this project. Uh, will Jumbo Fresh receive any money from the state or the city? Yes. Yeah, so with my partners, I was able to raise um, $1.5 million um, of city and state level funding for as an incentive for the grocer option um, to come into the Mount Clare Junction Shopping Center. And that that those funding um, is, is going are going to be used for anything from manufacturing to just making sure that we have a comprehensive build out for a full range grocery store. Um, unfortunately, um, the price right didn't have um, much of the basic necessities, like a pharmacy, like a bakery, like a deli, um, that are that are needed for our communities. Given that um, the entirety of South Baltimore um, is in a food desert, so this provides the same opportunities and amenities that we see in some of the more affluent areas in in South Baltimore and Southwest Baltimore, um, which I label as um, up-and-coming areas in the city of Baltimore. Councilwoman Felicia Porter represents South Baltimore on the city council. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. And Jasmine, let's also talk about another uh, story that you wrote about something called the SB7 Coalition, uh, also uh, on the south side of town. Um, this is a really unique uh, unique adventure, uh, or venture, I should say, endeavor, um, because it, it, it is not uh, something you see often with various neighborhoods getting together uh, in, a, in a kind of a network. What is the, the SB7 Coalition? Yeah, so honestly, it really stems back to a, a 2016 community benefits agreement. Um, and this nonprofit kind of came about. It represents Cherry Hill, Brooklyn, Mount Winans, Lakeland, Westport, Curtis Bay, and also um, the Baltimore Peninsula partners. And basically, you know, this nonprofit is basically going to receive $20 million by 2026. And they have a lot of governance over how this money is going to be spent. Um, and it's a, it's a little bit complex. So there's a lot of um, conversations that have to be had um, amongst the committees about how this money is going to be dispersed. And, you know, they're basically making a process um, that hasn't been done before in this area. Yeah. And it is complex, isn't it? Because it's a lot of money, 20 million bucks, and it's a lot of different neighborhoods. Uh, And these neighborhoods, you know, perhaps have different priorities, different issues that are uh, of, uh, you know, top of mind concern. So how, how is this coalition Uh, planning on addressing those complexities. Right. So there, there are some kind of cross the board, you know, finances that have gone out. So a community organization, six community organizations were able to get $200,000 a piece just to kind of help grow their, you know, separate entities. And then there are also just kind of different tiers of grants. So there are some hype, very hyper local grants um, that go specifically maybe to one community. Um, for example, some funds had gone towards um, commemorating a 100-year-old firehouse in Curtis Bay. Um, and also funds went towards um, Bark 
um, with chipping and vaccination services in Brooklyn. But there are also other grants that require, you know, the benefit to be more than one community. So there is a, a transportation initiative that is funding, you know, church vans that can be used in South Baltimore, basically to get residents around in more than one community. So it really is just sort of different tiers that they're um, experimenting with for this process. And they're kind of seeing how that plays out. If you've just joined us, it's midday, and today it's midday in the neighborhood. My guest is Jasmine Vaughn Hall, who covers neighborhoods for the Baltimore Banner, our news partner here at WYPR. If you have a comment or question, 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at wypr.org. So, Jasmine, we're talking about the Baltimore Peninsula, which is the artist formerly known as Port Covington. Um, This is a $5.5 billion project. Um, this is uh, somewhat controversial, uh, to say the least, back uh, when this was put together because it included uh, what's called a TIF from the city, a tax increment financing thing that's like $660 million, you report uh, and remind us of in, in your in your piece. Um, does any of that money go to uh, these neighborhood groups? Where, where does the money, where's the $20 million so, so in terms of the the source of this money, because you know this is such a big project down there in Port Covington, although it's uh, it's been scaled back considerably since 2016 when it was first conceived. But in terms of this neighborhood uh, coalition, the the money that they get, um, is there a specific source of that funding for them? So. It's it's kind of split up. So we say 20, 20 million overall by twenty twenty six, but that includes you know just ten million over the first five years, and then Sagamore Ventures is also committing to helping the coalition raise another ten million over the following five years. So it's kind of broken up. It's not specifically from one source, the twenty million dollars. So when you say Sagamore is going to help them raise another ten million dollars, where do you where do you raise ten million dollars? Who gives it to you? I mean, the money's there. It's 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 in it's in Baltimore. I mean, I think they're going to have to get creative in how they raise that money, um, and it hasn't been explicitly sort of laid out how they plan to do that in the but, next five years. But that will be philanthropy. I mean, they'll go to foundations and companies and that kind of stuff. It'll be philanthropy rather than money from the city or money from the state. Do you do you know? Do you have a sense of of, of where that's going to come from eventually? You know, I can't really expand on that, um, only because I hadn't gotten into detail with them about that specific part. Um, But I'm sure that, you know, they'll definitely try to, you know, just be innovative in raising that money along with, you know, the committee members. Yeah, sure. So uh, you mentioned that each of the community organizations that's represented in this coalition uh, get uh, have already gotten $200,000 a piece to, to do with what they want. Um, but I wonder, I mean, when you talk to the folks uh, and each of the, the folks who are uh, members of this coalition represent their own individual neighborhoods. So um, what, what's their, what's their uh, level of uh, optimism about being able to work out stuff uh, when it comes to, you know, money that has to be dispersed among all six groups? I mean, it can be difficult for, 
for families to argue about money. It can be difficult for uh, city councils and county councils to argue about money. Uh, and I wonder if, if you think it may uh, ultimately turn out to be kind of difficult for the, the SB7 coalition to argue about money. I mean, they've definitely been honest about, you know, just the back and forth that can occur just because one, this is new to all of them. And it's also a process. It has to do with a lot of money. There are a lot of different voices in the different neighborhoods and communities that make up South Baltimore. But I think ultimately they really are relying on the community to point them in the direction of where money should go um, and what projects need to be financed. So I think, you know, they're being really honest about that, that this is a process. There is, you know, maybe some conflict, but at the end of the day, I think they all have very similar goals and they're just going to continue to push towards those. There's a photograph in your story of the members of the coalition standing in front of a storefront that I guess ultimately is going to be an actual office for the coalition itself. Uh, What what will that space um, also be used for? Yeah, so it's um, going to be the headquarters. It's out in Brooklyn. So it's going to be, you know, office space. And I think they're also going to uh, maybe open it up to uh, community members to have different meetings. We haven't been on the inside just yet, um, but I would imagine it'd be roomy and, you know, enough for, you know, everybody to kind of be able to benefit from the new space. And this really is kind of unprecedented, isn't it, uh, in terms of the developers, the people who are uh, putting up these big buildings uh, in uh, Baltimore Peninsula, working you know pretty directly with this coalition of neighborhoods. This was something that was conceived, as you said, back in 2016. Um, but just because it was conceived doesn't mean uh, it's going to be without problems, uh, because this is really without precedent in a lot of ways, isn't it? Yeah, and I think you know people aren't necessarily used to hearing about, you know, communities working so closely with developers, um, you know, once the, you know, project starts rolling out. So I think that's also significant. And then also another thing that I wanted to point out was something that, you know, Michael Middleton talked a lot about in Cherry Hill is that this is really an opportunity for those neighborhoods and communities to come together and start working together. Because, you know, historically, even though they've all been, you know, categorized as South Baltimore, there hasn't necessarily been a lot of collaboration. So there's a lot of opportunity for that. And there's a lot of cross overlapping of issues and problems that can be faced head on together. Yeah, I'm really glad you wrote this story because it, it does bring up uh, this this notion. A lot of times people say, oh, you know, we need regional cooperation between the county and the city, for example, or we need uh, neighborhood cooperation between all these various neighborhoods that are, uh, you know, in the general uh, same neck of the woods. But the actual implementation of that kind of cooperation is easier said than done. Uh, and it takes, uh, you know, a real concerted effort to make it happen. And it sounds like these folks with this new coalition uh, are, are making that effort. So uh, I wish them the best. I hope it works out. Same. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jasmine. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll be in touch. Uh, always enjoy your reporting and always enjoy having you on. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Jasmine Von Hall. She covers West Baltimore and community issues for our news partner, The Baltimore Banner. And coming up, the trail in Herring Run Parks is closed indefinitely because of soil erosion. We'll get an update from Clara Longo de Freitas of the Baltimore Banner and Misty Fay, who heads the Friends Group of Herring Run Parks. They join me on the other side of a quick break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you'd like to join us, our number 410-662-8780, our email, midday at wipr.org. 
Stay with us. You're listening to Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up on the show tomorrow, it's been a month since borrowers have been obligated to resume paying their student loans again after a long COVID hiatus and problems abound. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel of The Washington Post and Alan Collins of Student Loan Justice join me to talk about what those problems are and what it will take to fix them. So that's coming up tomorrow. If you've just joined us today, it's Midday in the Neighborhood. In partnership with our colleagues at the Baltimore Banner, we check in about issues affecting some of Baltimore's 278 named communities and other neighborhoods in the Baltimore metro area. Joining me now are Clara Longo de Fritas, who covers East Baltimore for the Baltimore Banner. Hey, Clara, how you doing? Hi, good morning. I'm good. How are you? Clara is on Zoom, and Misty Fay is with me here in Studio A. She's the president of Friends of Herring Run Parks. It's nice to meet you, Misty. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Tom. So, Misty, let's start by having you um, sort of place Herring Run Parks for us. Where is it? Uh, and it it it, it uh, bounds uh, its its boundaries include a whole bunch of different communities, doesn't it? Very, very many. So the Herring Run Parks start near Lake Montebello, on the other side of Harford Road from Lake Montebello, and they stretch all the way down in a linear park fashion to 895. So you can actually go from Harford Road all the way to 895. In our parks. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot. It's hundreds of acres, right? It's 375 acres of urban forested woodlands. And what's what's closed now because of uh, the erosion problems? There is a portion of the path near the Hall Springs entrance, kind of also by Father Hooper Fields across the stream from Father Hooper Fields, uh, near the new bridge that they built in Harford Road that has been washed out. Um, by a storm event, which was not Ophelia, but it was a couple of days before Ophelia, where the USGS, the Geological Survey, measured 12 feet of water coming through that stream bed. That was in September. That was in September. And so when when that water, uh, you know, the deluge happened, um, there was a a path that people used to walk on, right, that that just got washed out? Yeah, a portion of of the edge of the path. So essentially the stream bank was washed out. And that stream bank is probably, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 feet high in that area. And the path sits at the top of that stream bank. So the stormwater came through so intensely that it washed out an edge of that stream bank on under the path. All right, right, so people so, have not been able to use that path since the middle of September. The Yeah, Parks and Rec have closed that path. Yes. Yeah, and Clara, uh, when you uh, talk to folks from Parks and Rec and DPW, um, what did they tell you uh, was the plan to, to get it back up and running? Yeah, so right now, they at least when I talked to them back in October, they really didn't have a plan. They were trying to figure out what would be the best way to try to address the erosion and you know, try to make sure that more parts of the stream bank doesn't collapse. Um, they had closed, they had put signage just to make sure that 
people wouldn't cross and, and make sure that it's safe. Um, I think that they were supposed to have a plan by now, by November, and Ryan Dorsey, the councilman that represents the district, really wanted the departments to actually implement the plan by the end of the year. Um, I, I think that they're hoping that they can do that, but I don't know if they have all the resources to make that possible, if that makes sense. And this will be a combination of Rec and Parks, uh, that department, as well as DPWs. Do, do they both have uh, jurisdiction over the parks? If they I may. do. Uh, oh, yeah. Go yeah. ahead, Misty. So the stream bed and all of the water in Baltimore City is owned by the Department of Public Works. So they're responsible for all of the water systems, including the streams and stream beds. And the park, the land around it, is the responsibility of Baltimore City Recs and Parks. All right. So they have to kind of work together to get these things done. So that that <laughs> seems like a very complicated bit of uh, ownership and portfolio div division. There are many layers to it. In, in addition, one of the things that's important is that while we really want to see this you know, resolved as soon as possible. We all also want to see uh, DPW and BCRP go forward with a really solid plan, right? So that it's not just done quickly, but that it's also done very well, because there is a great amount of ecological impact anytime you do construction on that level, right? And what what is Councilman Dorsey telling you, uh, Clara, when you talk to him? I mean, uh, he's uh, he's very big on the outdoors. He's a great biker, and, and you know, he's a hiker, mm -hmm. and uh, he spends a lot of time outside. Um, do, does he yeah. have a notion of how this should uh, proceed? Um, I think I think his notion is that he he thinks it could have been done quicker. He thinks that the departments could do a better job and just really going forward with, with this project. Um, but like he said, he said it himself, like, is it as fast and urgent as a response as he would like? He doesn't think so, but that's what the departments were able to commit to, and that's what they're going to do. And that's where things stand. So Misty, is, uh, to your knowledge, then there is no plan at the moment. They, they're still working on that. No, my understanding is that there's a plan in development that may or may not be completed at this point. So I don't know exactly, but I know that that it was the contract has been assigned and awarded and the folks have been out to survey. So that's as much as we've been told. What is the relationship between this particular problem of the, the stream bed uh, eroding the trail that people use? And stormwater. We hear a lot about stormwater runoff. Um, tell us, tell us how those two are connected. I will be happy to do that. <laughs> so, one of the things that's happened over the last few years is climate change, right? So, what that means is two parts. One, we get more rain events, and we get stronger and bigger rain events. And in conjunction with that. We have also been building and building and building, and we have more impermeable surfaces, right? So that means places where the water cannot seep into the ground, right? So what happens when those two things come together is that all of that water then pours down into the storm drains, which then pour directly into the streams and rivers, right? And it's so much that it's hard for our streams and rivers 
to absorb all of that at one time. And this is when you get erosion and flooding, right? Um, what needs to happen is that we need to look at upstream ways to address stormwater management, right? Which means that we need to increase places that are safe for the stormwater to sit around and soak into the ground. And we also need to get rid of some of those impervious surfaces and turn them into uh, places where the water can get through. Yeah, right? so asphalt not good. needs to go away. Right. And and the, the ground uh, needs to be available to, for mm -hmm. the, the rainwater to soak in before it gets into the stream and just starts flooding things exactly. out. Exactly. Yeah. And no one here is saying that, you know, we don't want parking lots, right? I mean, <laughs> there are ways to create these things so that they can live in harmony, that we can all park our cars in the county and go to the mall and we can make sure that that surface allows rainwater through it. Yeah. And because uh, of, 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 of that problem being, uh, uh, you know, statewide, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Larry, Larry Hogan got himself elected governor uh, talking about the rain tax because various jurisdictions, you know, were uh, trying to assess uh, homeowners uh, right. to, to mitigate uh, against storm uh, water uh, runoff. Um, this is a, a, probably a problem that's not unique to Herring Run Parks. No, absolutely not. So I think you've seen in the news recently that there's folks in Howard County who are having this. So one of the things that um, the DPW uh, wants to do is something called stream restorations, which, you know, I am not a scientist, so I'm not Stream restorations. Stream restorations, which is... Um, a way to straighten a stream or change the flow of a stream uh, with the intention of having it be able to hold more stormwater without eroding. Um, we have not seen in Baltimore City that this is particularly effective. Uh, we've Chincapin Run had one done, the Stony Run had one done, both of these have failed. There's now one in the western branch of the Herring Run that we are working to try and stop. Um, been in conversation with the mayor's office about this um, because there's no cost benefit here, right? The real work to impact stormwater runoff is the upstream changing the impervious surfaces, changing, you know, spaces that we use to capture that water, not to destroy the forested areas, which is a lot of times what the stream restorations do. Mm. Uh, we're talking like 10 acres of you know, mature growth forest. And sometimes you need to do things that are unpleasant in order to get to pleasant uh, outcomes, right? But really, in this particular situation, we are, we are clear that the cost does not out, the cost outweighs the benefits, that the benefits are not there. And uh, Clara Longer de Freitas, uh, when you spoke with uh, Councilman Dorsey, um, he uh, characterized the DPW plan in this instance as ill-conceived. Uh, did he elaborate on what what he thought was wrong with it? Uh, and and does does it seem like uh, if it is ill-conceived, it's still moving forward? I think he was talking about like what was there before um, the 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 treatment collapsed. Um, mm -hmm. Usually, they have. Um, I think Missy might know the name better than I do, but they have um, an engineering thing that like holds the thing to prevent it from collapsing. And it's not necessarily 
permanent. It it can be temporary, and that's the thing that he was saying was ill conceived. Like it wasn't something that was an engineering that was going to last. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's what that's what Missy was saying that um, sometimes you do have to wait a little bit longer to actually do something that is going to be better in the long run. And so, Missy, at this point, because it looks like this is going to be a long term proposition to get it fixed. Um, is the is the park, you know, completely closed? The whole mm-hmm. thing, all 335 acres. I mean, can people still enjoy uh, a big part of Herring Run Park? Absolutely. There's only one small portion of the paved trail, um, and there are alternatives to that trail that go up into the wooded area. So we have nearly six miles of paved and accessible trails in Herring Run, and it's less than a tenth of a mile that is impacted. Okay, so just that part of it is closed. Yes, just that tiny little part, and you can go up the hill. There are also many um, unpaved and uh, gravel trails that go up the side of the hill. Because there's a lot of folks that, uh, you know, uh, refer to Herring Run Parks as as the sort of uh, unknown, uh, hidden beauty of, of... uh, of the city. I mean, you know, I live near Druid Hill Park, Patterson Park. People know those places because they're very public. There's a lot of people and they're not forested. Yes. Uh, they're open, you know, yeah. and so people walk around and see each other. But um, Herring Run Park, there are, you, you get a good number of folks enjoying that space as well? There are many, many, many people using Herring Run Parks and it is an amazing space. There are fox, there are deer, there are beaver, there are hawks. Uh, there's. I took a kid's bird walk, mm, I don't know, three weeks ago or so. We saw a hundred different species of birds just in a two-and-a-half-hour period of time. Yeah. You know? And, so and this trail you're talking about, you're, t- you're saying it's paved. Yes. So it's good for runners. It's good for runners, bikers. bikers, strollers. strollers. Yeah. You know, people come and walk their dogs in Herring Run Parks. There's several spaces that have open green area where you can play. Um, but there's also this really lovely, dense, wooded area that is so beneficial to who we are and, and what we are as a city. Yeah, and good you know? for, you know, all, all those trees uh, helps clean the air. Uh, not just for that part of the town, but for uh, exactly. places, you know. Um, if you like s- to breathe, out. you love Herring Run Park. <laughs> Well, I myself happen to be a big yeah. fan of breathing. So it's lovely, good. isn't it? <laughs> All right. Well, Misty Fay is the president of Friends of Herring Run Parks. Thanks for coming in and telling us about this uh, real gem here in our city. Thank you so much. We'll see you in the park, Tom. Okay. And Clara Longo de Fritas covers neighborhoods for the Baltimore Banner. Thanks, Clara. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. And coming up, Midday in the Neighborhood, we'll continue with Daniel Zawadny of the Baltimore Banner. We'll examine what happened to the buses in Howard County when the school year started last fall. It wasn't pretty, and we'll find out why. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR. Welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us today, it's Midday in the Neighborhood. And now we're going to turn our attention to Howard County. 
The school system there contracted with a private company called Zoom to provide bus service for county students, and the company got off to a very rough start. Baltimore Banner transportation reporter Daniel Zawadny looked into what happened, and he joins me here in Studio A to tell us what he found. Good to see you, Daniel. Hey, Tom. Great to meet you. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about Zoom and why Howard County hired them to uh, to do part of the bus system. Sure. So Zoom, it's not the video conferencing software that a lot of people got to know much better during the pandemic. Uh, it's it's a transportation company, really a tech company that's based in Silicon Valley. So it's a tech startup uh, company out in California that was starting with smaller contracts in, in Oakland, Seattle, other West Coast cities before then moving to the East Coast. Howard County was its first major East Coast contract. Uh, and so they essentially what they posit to do is to modernize what they call an antiquated industry. So student transportation, I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners, we can all remember at some point probably getting on a yellow school bus to get to school. Um, they're not exactly fancy. They don't have a lot of bells and whistles, but Zoom's buses, uh, they they tried to basically infuse tech into into school buses to make it uh, to make it more of a, a modern experience. So some of those things include turn by turn navigation software that all the drivers have access to on tablets. Uh, that also includes lists of the students that are supposed to be on their routes. Uh, there's a mobile app that parents and actually kids as well can download and can track the buses as they're on their way to school and back home to know exactly when uh, children are going to be dropped off, things like that to, to try to to try to kind of make it this more modern experience. So it's a $27 million contract. So it's a lot of money for these folks, um, big contract for Zoom. Um, does this mean that they are doing all of the Howard County School System's transportation thing, or are they doing a portion of it? They are not doing all of the routes. So they are covering roughly 230 routes out of around 500. So somewhere between 40 and, and 50% of, of the, the school bus routes for Howard County. Howard County is a, it's a really interesting kind of outlier uh, in, in regards to student transportation with other districts here in Maryland. It's, it's the only of the, the 24 jurisdictions in Maryland that relies exclusively on private contractors. So most districts have some sort of patchwork between uh, buses that the school district itself owns and then has state employees driving them and then you know private companies to kind of supplement where it where it needs to fill some some routes out but Howard County relies exclusively on private companies to do that and so there have been times in the history of the county where they've had up upwards of 50 different companies covering all the all the different routes and sometimes that would just be you know uh, somebody who's a farmer in, in rural western Howard County uh, also owns a school bus. And so in the mornings and the afternoons, they're just driving, a, they're driving the bus and that counts as one of them. But um, that's, that's happening less now. I'd say there's, it's around 20, a little more than 20 different companies that are handling it. 20 but, different vendors. But even that, yeah. I mean, that's a nightmare to manage. To me, you, yes, you I, yeah, I yeah. don't, I don't envy the person who has to to manage all of that. It sounds like a lot, but Zoom is definitely by far the largest. And Zoom supplies the drivers and the vehicles. Correct. Right? Yes, and they had some problems uh, getting both of those things, according to your reporting. I mean, the first day of school, some twenty four hundred kids uh, didn't get picked up, so they had some trouble. That's correct. Yes, so it it really everything kicked off that that I believe it was August 28th, Monday morning, the first the first day of school, when uh, 20 of Zoom's drivers just called out. They just, they they said, we're not coming to work today. 
that was something that that a lot of us in the media were trying to get more answers about because that just jumped out right away it's like it's the first day of work and people are just calling out like it 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 felt like there had to be to be more to that story i kind of as we as we pressed and we tried to get more answers it really it seems like it was just that there's just 20 people that happened to call out and it it actually uh through our reporting we we have seen uh zoom has has said that they've seen kind of an an a, a, an unusual amount of of callouts this year from from some of their drivers, but so that was really kind of what started this kind of cascading effect. Uh, in addition to some other issues that that popped up, that basically led to not just kids having their routes totally canceled, but but buses showing up super late, getting them to the, to school well after the bells time had started, and then also getting them home. We talked to some parents that their kids didn't get home until three hours, uh, sometimes more, after school had ended, and they were just trying to get the bus right after school. And it's not necessarily, according to your reporting, all at the feet of Zoom. Uh, the county itself, um, as you, you write, uh, bears some responsibility here. I mean, for example, right before school started, uh, they had some changes that were, were very last minute uh, that Zoom didn't get until, uh, like, re- literally the night before the, these new drivers were supposed to pick people up they did and it's been interesting to see in all of this there's been a lot of finger pointing between you know zoom kind of pointing at the school district and saying that this is these are problems that all the other companies were experiencing as well we talked to some of the other companies that said hey no don't bring us into this we're not experiencing these problems the district is taking responsibility for some things but also pointing the finger right back saying hey we don't have any more information on that question you got to talk to zoom that's their issue so there's been a lot of kind of not necessarily a, a full taking on of responsibility of, of the blame. And I think it because it is kind of this shared, there 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 was kind of mistakes across the board uh, that, that went into this. Um, but yes, so the, the school district, they were supposed to uh, deliver these, basically the final routes um, to, to the company, to Zoom. And the school district determines the routes. Yes, Zoom correct. doesn't do that. Correct. Yes. The school district determines, determines the routes. And that's largely, that's based on so many different things. And and, you know, school officials have said that it's a very dynamic process, especially leading up to the, the, those final couple weeks before school. And then even in the, the first couple weeks of school, it's very normal to have small tweaks and changes happen to the routes based on, you know, enrollment numbers, based on, hey, we didn't realize that there's there's going to be three weeks of road work happening on this street. So we've got to kind of divert and, and change it a little bit. Things like that are just normal to pop up um, that those things came up in our reporting. But uh, the finalized routes that Zoom was then going to basically give to their drivers and say, hey, now it's your time to do what they call a dry run, basically, before you're going to pick up any kids, take the bus out, do the run to make sure you know where you're going. Um, They didn't have time to do that with a lot of them because they actually got finalized routes for a number of the routes the Saturday right before the start of school. When I believe in the contract, um, I didn't get to take a look at at it myself personally, but but um, Zoom's um, COO had said that they were supposed to get them uh, like 10 days in advance. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, jurisdictions around the state, around the country, have had a trouble uh, recruiting bus drivers for those who own their own uh, fleet of buses. Um, Baltimore County, we've reported on that here on Midday. Anne Arundel County, they've had shortages. They've had people uh, not showing up to work. They've had not enough drivers to begin with. Zoom said they could handle that problem. Um, what made Zoom think that they would be able to get drivers uh, that these other jurisdictions had trouble getting? Because as it turned out, Zoom had to ship in a bunch of drivers from the West Coast, from Seattle and places, Oakland, 
around and stuff like that. Had to fly him here to Howard County for the first few weeks of school to uh, to make up for the shortfall that they experienced. That's right. Yeah, they had to fly in 72 drivers uh, that were Zoom employees but working in Washington State uh, to, to come in and kind of cover as they brought more drivers on board locally. And that's exactly right. I mean, it, it seems like Zoom was chosen for this contract partially out of kind of this promise of being able to 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 solve the, the shortage and be able to bring new people in. And they've had some success with that. And they've also had some they've realized that it's maybe a tougher a tougher thing to do than than not. So some of the things they tried to do, you know, they they were really touting the pay and the benefits they were they've been offering um, a salary, I think, starting salary between twenty-six and thirty dollars an hour to drive, which uh, was was higher than than area contractors. They also every driver gets uh, gets full a full slew of benefits. You know, they get health insurance, they get retirement, other things like that that other companies um, not every company is is able to offer those things. And you know, I think that that really that really sold uh, folks on it. And I mean, I, I talked to one teacher who said like, you know, hey, there's there's not a, a bus driver shortage, there's a wage shortage. It's like, you know, if you if you pay people enough and you make the job enticing enough, um, people are gonna wanna do it. And, you know, to Zoom's credit, I think like they now currently, uh, they say that they have a surplus. They say that they have 271 drivers on staff, which is, which is more than the, the 230 routes they're contracted to handle. And they say that that's great because now if someone calls out or if a bus gets held up in traffic, they can send out uh, one of their on-call drivers uh, to go out and to cover that to cover that route. Uh, the issue is just kind of getting that up and running in time, uh, which obviously they were not able to do for the start of school. And uh, there have been a couple casualties uh, in this uh, instance. Uh, Michael Martirano, the school superintendent, has two and a half years left on his contract, but he's leaving uh, in the middle of next month. And the, the COO uh, of the school system also left. I mean, there's there was really uh, an outcry uh, of frustration and disappointment and an and attenuation of the confidence level in the school system um, among a lot of parents, wasn't there? There was. You know, so parents and families, they they really they really kind of got up in arms uh, uh, about this. And a lot of folks were very upset. I mean, understandably so saying that, you know, Hey, like time that our kids are spending waiting for the bus or on the bus and not in school is, is instructional time that they're losing. And, you know, and that's something that, you know, is a big conversation here in Baltimore city too, where a lot of students um, have to go through such great lengths just to get to school or to get home. And, And we don't often think about, you know, the, the instructional time or the extracurricular and developmental time that kids might be losing because of that. That's a real, it's a real, real issue. So they were, they're uh, understandably very upset about some of those things. Um, I have not reported uh, directly on, on Martirano's uh, stepping away and retiring. Uh, so I can't speak too, too much. And to they it, haven't but... said specifically, oh, this is directly related to the school exactly. bus problem, but you know, it didn't help. Yeah. And that's, and that's what it basically what I was going to say that they've, they've kind of my impression is is that they've kept it relatively hush about exactly why he's deciding to retire. I think I think it's two years or two and a half years uh, short of the end of of the end of his contract. So um, I, I think it, yeah, as you said, it definitely probably didn't help. And it's I mean, 
it was an incredibly stressful time for for all school officials and was very much an all hands on deck sort of situation. Yeah. I mean, the emails that we and were right able, at the beginning of the year too. Exactly. Yeah, the emails that we were, that we obtained through a public records request. Uh, I mean, they even demonstrate that that some of the folks were staying up all night uh, to to do this. So, you know, that's that's a stressful situation. For so everyone. here we are. It's almost December. Is it fixed? I mean, are the kids getting picked up at the right time and, and getting home in a decent hour? My impression is for the for the most part, yes, uh, that at least in the mornings and the kind of those normal operations, mornings and afternoons, uh, getting kids to and from school are fixed. I mean, but there have been continued to be issues, you know, some like athletics is another is another thing that I haven't even really been able to to dive into too much with my reporting is that getting kids to and from football games and things like that yeah. so well that's a work in progress and uh, technology you know makes a lot of promises <laughs> in some of these tech companies but we appreciate your reporting and your time today thanks so much Daniel absolutely thanks for having me Daniel Zawadney covers transportation for our news partner the Baltimore Banner and that's it for us today coming up tomorrow We'll examine what's going on with student loans. 19 attorneys general wrote a letter recently to the Department of Education expressing alarm about widespread loan servicing problems. So if you've resumed making your loan payments now that the COVID hiatus is over, give us a call and let us know what your experience has been tomorrow. Up next, it's Future City. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 881 WYPR.